Hello and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent S. And I'm C, the provocateur. Well, C, <laughs> what are we looking at this week? We are going to look at the 1997 hit Men in Black, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld and starring two actors you may have heard of, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. No, no idea. They must be relative newbies. <laughs> I think one of them may have been in a Batman movie. Not the one with the nipples, right? <laughs> Actually, it was. <laughs> oh, Yippee. Well, okay, so our usual routine is for me to read the synopsis of letterboxd.com. Now, just to answer your, your question before you ask it, Cam, this is a bit of a long one. Nice. So strap yourselves in. Men in Black, protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe. After a police chase with an otherworldly being, a New York City cop is recruited as an agent in a top-secret organization established to monitor and police alien activity on Earth, the men in black. Agent K and new recruit Agent J find themselves in the middle of a deadly plot by an intergalactic terrorist who has arrived on Earth to assassinate two ambassadors from opposing galaxies. That's not too bad. It's not too dragged out. You know, I think the Bourne identity holds the hall of shame for me in uh, how much information was expended in that synopsis that was completely unnecessary. I mean, what the listeners don't know is there actually was about two more paragraphs of Bourne Identity, but we just cut that out in the end. <laughs> yeah. We went into full descriptions of what he was wearing, what he ate in certain scenes. <laughs> Critiqued his driving skills, you know. It was, it was basically listening to a podcast on the, on the movie itself. That's right. It basically, well, I mean, the synopsis would have been about two hours had we read it out. Exactly. But um, initial thoughts, Men in Black. Yeah. Yeah, so Men in Black was like a big deal for me when it opened in 97. Um, I had been a huge fan of Independence Day. Like I loved Independence Day a lot. And that movie really did usher Will Smith in as a movie star. And so I was counting the days until Men in Black came out because I don't know if you remember, but 1997 had two huge movies opening that summer that I could not wait for. One was Men in Black. And two was The Lost World Jurassic Park. And three was Speed 2 Cruise Control. <laughs> you had me with one and two, and you careered away from me on, the, on three. Speed was a little bit further down the list. But, um, <laughs> but ultimately, um, I walked out of Men in Black not that happy. And I oh. guess it just didn't deliver what I was really looking for at the time. And I remember my sister bought it on VHS, and I watched it again with her. And I was like, no, no, this is definitely not for me. And wow. that was back in 19, probably 98 was the last time I saw it. So this was the first time in like over 20 years. So um, my thoughts have changed a little bit. But what about you, Scott? I, I'm on the opposite side of the coin to you on that one. I was a wide-eyed, bushy-tailed 10-year-old. Uh, and this film is everything I wanted. A great pop song attached to a good film with uh, some shooty guns and aliens and cool guys. That's, that's basically all a 10-year-old could ask for, really. And then I had uh, dinosaurs around the same time, so it was a great summer for me. That's right, yeah. I mean, Men in Black, if you really think about it, was probably the big hit of that summer in terms of audience response because Lost World, while it was hugely successful... Very few, I think, walked out of that one feeling like they got the same high they got off of Jurassic Park. Yeah, I think Men in Black was the one that, I mean, I'm on the different side again with this. We got the VHS copy as soon as it came out. And it's one of those films in my household that would just get put on. Mm -hmm. So I was very familiar with the film before I sat down to rewatch it this week. Right. Um, and I, and as, as I said, I enjoyed it too. So it's not like I begrudgingly watched it over and over and over again. I was, I was quoting lines by the, by the time I was like 12, I imagine, two years later. And sorry, the movie you watched over and over again, you're referring to Speed 2 Cruise Control, right? Can I make a, a, a bit of a confession to you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't seen either of them. Really? You know what? The first Speed is fantastic. Like one of the great action movies. Um, 
But uh, the second one is uh, not so much. I mean, it's kind of like comparing Die Hard to a good day to Die Hard. Okay, yeah, that's a bit of a yeah, a bit of a contrast there. Okay, well, I, I think I've seen the first one like bits and bobs when it's been on television and stuff. But I don't think I've ever sat down as an adult and watched it all the way through. I would but, highly recommend it. Okay, yeah. uh, I, I will put that on my list of films to watch when I'm not watching spy movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I say, Men in Black enjoyed it as a kid, and going back to it this week, I enjoyed it again. Yeah, it's a, a much more enjoyable movie than my memory recalled it being. Like, it was a movie that I found a lot to appreciate this time through. And I think it was honestly, a lot of it for me was just, it wasn't the movie I wanted at that point in time. I mean, I was, what, 15, 16 years old. I was a little surly. And I think I just wanted more of what Independence Day gave me versus what Men in Black was doing, which was much more in line with, say, like a Ghostbusters. And, you know, when I was 16, I wanted something a little more hard-edged, man. Something more into the world, exciting. So you wanted it to be sort of more of a stake in the game, basically, like more of a threat. I think I wanted it to be more of a blockbuster, like more of an amped-up okay. blockbuster than it, than it ever, you know, wanted to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, comparing Men in Black to Independence Day in terms of spectacle. Yeah. It's night and day. Night and yeah. day. Exactly. Okay. I actually thought you would have, you genuinely surprised me by saying you didn't enjoy it as a kid. I would have thought it was right up your street, even as a 16 year old. Or were you in your sort of gothy rock phase at that stage? No, that came later. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what was, okay, 16. What is 16 year old Cam doing? Um, he's listening to a lot of James Bond themes that he's recorded off a tape recorder uh, from the TV. Um, I'm trying to think of what, I think I was really into Star Wars at that point too. So a lot of Star Wars stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that I was really lo- that locked down in a lot of my interests the way I would be later, but I, I, you know, the spy stuff was still worked in there with the Bond themes and I w- was watching Bond movies. Yeah, I suppose. Did, um, Die Another Day come out this year as well, or is that next year? Uh, that's 2002. It's actually Tomorrow Never Dies open this year. Oh yeah, my bad. There we go. Well, okay. So we've got our sort of thoughts on it. But you are the man with the info. So how did this film come to be? Okay, so Men in Black, um, this movie, as I said, it followed Independence Day. Independence Day had made $817 million worldwide. It was a smash. And so Will Smith suddenly went from the guy crossing over from a sitcom, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, to a guaranteed box office lock, it seemed. And he was returning the following year with another Alien movie. And so Men in Black was really considered a big hit even before it opened, as I recall. And uh, the budget for it was $90 million, which is so low when you compare what you know, a movie would cost nowadays. $90 million. Domestic, it made $251 million. International, $339 For a worldwide total of $589 million in $97, that's really, really good. So it doesn't quite... Uh, sort of stack up next to Independence Day, but very much a hit. You just compare that to sort of Man from Uncle last week that cost 75 million or whatever it was. And this feels like it's had a lot more money spent on it. Yeah, well, exactly. That is true. Yeah, this did cost more, especially when you consider the time difference. That's a 20 year time difference. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, like 589 million for a movie back then in 97, that's phenomenal. Um, it was number three for the year worldwide. Um, so number one was Titanic. And I think we knew Titanic was a runaway ship that nothing was going to catch. And number two was the Lost World Jurassic Park. And it did edge out Tomorrow Never Dies by one spot. Tomorrow Never Dies was number four. I'm actually surprised that uh, Jurassic Park was ahead of it, really. I remember seeing that film specifically. I remember the theater I was in when I saw that, Jurassic Park. And it just seemed like more of a disappointment. And I, I think I enjoyed Men in Black more as a kid. I think the thing was, though, the Lost World... While for many it was a disappointment and it wasn't reviewed particularly well, everyone had to see it because Jurassic Park was such a beloved movie that everyone who saw Jurassic Park knew they had to see The Lost World, even if the reviews weren't great. Like, so a lot of people went back. I saw it, I think, two or three times in theaters just because I was so in love mostly with the first one. Yeah, I, I could see that sort of built-in sequel audience thing helping it along. That makes sense. Yeah. And so some of the other movies on the list that are notable, um, at number 18, you had Pierce Brosnan, also during his time as Bond, showing up in Dante's Peak. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's right. At number 25, you had The Jackal, which is a spy film with Bruce Willis. 
Number 36, you had Tommy Lee Jones, co-star of Men in Black in dot, 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 Volcano. Yes, this was the year of two Volcano movies. At number 39, you had The Saint, the adaptation of the Roger Moore spy TV show. At number 45, a movie we're going to be covering sometime fairly soon, who knows, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Groovy, baby. (laughs) At number 107, you had The Man Who Knew Too Little, which is a spy comedy with Bill Murray. And at number 116, you had the Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Double Team, in which he plays an international spy. That one I'm looking forward to covering after you sent me the photo of the, uh, the artwork the other day. I've never heard of it until you sent it to me, and I'm on board for that one. You haven't seen it? No, no. Oh, this is going to be a treat. <laughs> 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 and so Men in Black, as I said, huge hit. It also went on to win the Oscar for Best Makeup that year and was nominated for Art Direction and Music by uh, Danny Elfman there for the music. And I love the score for this movie a lot. So that was a well-deserved nomination. I, I, might, I was going to go into it later on when we actually go through the film, but there's a piece of music right in the intro that well, I found quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you notice, I mean, to me, it seemed like it had a lot of, it sort of evoked Bond almost. Right. I mean, I, you could definitely I, I got feel that, that feeling from it. Yeah, you could definitely get that feel because there is that soul. I mean, I don't know that there was that much of a pop culture touchstone to go to if you wanted to reference sort of secret agents other than Bond, and so it made sense to kind of work in maybe a little bit of Bondiness. I just I felt like I had a sort of the, the sort of brass and strings mm-hmm. going. I mean, I mean, other films do that too. It's not just a spy genre type score, but it, it that intro just gave me a, it was quite a long intro as well. It was, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so um, this movie also um, had an interesting development. Um, Like so many movies we're going to cover, there's a whole story behind the development of the movie. Uh, Every movie is its own story, I suppose. But this property, Men in Black, began its life as a three-issue comic book series in 1990 produced by a Canadian company called Air Cell Comics. And it became a bit of a cult hit. Air Cell ultimately merged with Malibu Comics and then cranked out another three issues of this series. And it had, you know, a cult audience. It wasn't a huge smash, but ultimately later down the road, Marvel would buy the property. And if you see Men in Black, you'll see credits in the uh, end uh, to Marvel Comics. At that point, Marvel had purchased it and would crank out comics, especially following the movie. But the series uh, was created by a guy named Lowell Cunningham. And the comic was different than the film. Uh, The film was much lighter and more optimistic, whereas the comic had a much darker edge to it. Um, Like, for example, the Neuralizer does not exist in the comics. In the comics, they just kill the witnesses. So it had a real sense of bleak humor and pessimism to it that obviously was not going to translate super well to a $90 million summer blockbuster. Yeah, you're not really going to get kids uh, flocking to the cinema for that one, or parents allowing them to flock to the cinema for that one. I just don't think anyone wants to tune in to watch Will Smith, like, <laughs> execute witnesses. Just, just look at the flowers. Why? That is so not the Will Smith brand. I mean, even when he played Deadshot in Suicide Squad, he was a pretty nice guy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I Am Legend, you know, he, he makes the big sacrifice at the end. He's, he's never really a bad guy, is he? No, not really. I'd like to see him as a villain. I think that could be fun. So ultimately what happened was producers Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald stumbled across this comic property and purchased the rights in 1992 and hired a a writer named Ed Solomon. Now, Ed Solomon's name may not jump out to you, but he was actually pretty prolific. He wrote the Bill and Ted films, including the new one. He also wrote the Now You See Me franchise as well as the first Charlie's Angels, another movie we'll be covering in the future. Just as an aside, I, I have a massive problem with the Now You See Me franchise. Is it because it's all CG? That's partly it. I don't mind the first film, but the second film, I will never see it because of the title. Oh, because it wasn't called Now You Don't? Right? Yeah. Who, who misses that? It's an open goal. Just, just, just tap it in. Baffling decision. Really baffling. <sighs> so Ed Solomon got hired onto this film basically in 92 and he said he would work on it over four years and initially it was pitched as you can write this in like six months or something right it'll be a real quick job and he says he was hired fired rehired fired and this just kept going on for four years straight and a lot of the battles were over the tone because obviously the comic as i said was a lot darker and i think the movie 
adaptations that they cranked out in their scripts kind of went back and forth tonally. They weren't quite sure what they were trying to nail down for a little bit. It was originally going to be about a secret service agent. It was going to be more sci-fi than like blockbuster, but the studio really decided they wanted to be blockbuster over sci-fi and they wanted in quotes, more big guns, which they got because <laughs> this movie has big guns. I said, when you said big guns, I assume you meant with just actors, but yeah, big guns is actually right on the cover. Yeah. And, and Steven Spielberg joined as an executive producer to oversee it. And they did approach a couple other directors. Uh, Tarantino was on their list, but I don't think that was ever going to happen. <laughs> you have to ask, but yeah. But you got to ask, but he did uh, Jackie Brown instead. And I think that turned out just fine. Uh, they also went to John Landis, who passed because he said it was too similar to his movie, The Blues Brothers. He just didn't want to do another movie about guys in suits. I mean, that's a loose connection, but okay, fair enough. I guess, but if you also don't know what this comic is, and there's a script that's in flux, you're looking at the two, at basically the artwork, going, um, I feel like maybe this is too similar to something I've done. I don't know what this is. See you later. Uh, they- They're on a mission from God. <laughs> they had another director attached for a while, which is a guy named Les Mayfield, who's not hugely prominent. He directed the Miracle on 34th Street remake. Um, he was kind of attached for a little bit and then just left. But ultimately, the producers wanted Barry Sonnenfeld due to his work on the Adams Family movies. And Barry Sonnenfeld came in and basically just pitched it as French Connection with Aliens. And they loved that. And that really got the ball rolling. And so then it just became time to cast it. Tommy Lee Jones was in very early. Um, He looked at the script. He didn't really like it. But Steven Spielberg said, don't worry, we are going to iron this thing out. This is going to be a really cool film. And so Tommy Lee Jones basically had some faith in Spielberg and decided to sign on. The studio was interested, though, in having Clint Eastwood before Tommy Lee Jones came along. And I think Clint Eastwood could have been fun, too. Is there an age difference between the two actors there? I feel like Clint Eastwood's slightly older than Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, he's probably about 10 years older, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think Tommy Lee Jones sits in the exact right age category for someone who's going to be a mentor and also retire in the same film. Yeah, I think they both could have worked in the role, but um, Tommy Lee Jones, obviously, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, I mean, he, he's pretty fantastic. So Tommy Lee Jones has signed up and they need a co-star. And Will Smith, you look at it from the point of view of now in 2020 and you go, well, of course, Will Smith would be high on the list. But that wasn't the case. Independence Day hadn't come out. At that point, Will Smith is mostly just known for his, you know, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and his rap music. And so the studio went to a couple other actors. I think we can both agree would have been infinitely better. Chris O'Donnell and David Schwimmer. I, I, I could see those films beating Titanic. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones would be recreating the scene of holding them as they're saying, I'm flying, I'm flying. <laughs> Even Avengers Endgame wouldn't have overtaken Titanic if they had been in a Men in Black because they would have been the lead and that would have been billions of billions of dollars. This is still the era where they're looking at the Friends cast to be breakout movie stars because you had the, um, uh, you know, Ed with the ape and you had a few others, uh, Fools Rush In with uh, Matthew Perry. There was a bunch of, Friends-related movies popping up at the box office, and I don't think really many of them were successful at all. David Schwimmer would have been a very poor choice, I think. I suppose I get David Schwimmer just based on, as you say, the Friends popularity at the time, but what had Chris O'Donnell been doing? Chris O'Donnell would have been coming off of Batman Forever, where he worked Mm -hmm. with Tommy Lee Jones. Um, He'd done Circle of Friends, which was a bit of a hit. So he was definitely someone I think a studio looks at as having, you know, quote-unquote youth appeal. The studio did talk to him and Barry Sonnenfeld went for an interview and Barry Sonnenfeld knew that this was looking to be a potential lock if the studio liked him. And Barry Sonnenfeld actually wanted Will Smith because Barry Sonnenfeld's wife was a big Fresh Prince fan. So she had said, what about this guy? And Barry Sonnenfeld loved him. And so he went to do an interview with Chris O'Donnell and basically he says, talked Chris O'Donnell out of doing his movie. It was basically like, we don't know what's going on with this script. I don't think this thing's going to work. I don't know. And basically Chris O'Donnell passed and then he could hire Will Smith after that happened. I wrote this down in my notes as a sort of a question to ask you. because I could have just looked it up, but I think you've not off the top of your head. Was this pre-Bad Boys then? Uh, this would have been actually after Bad Boys. So yeah, it's actually interesting in that like Bad Boys was a 
decent hit, but it also wasn't a breakout for him. Like even yeah. Michael Bay, Michael Bay wouldn't really break out until the following year after Bad Boys with The Rock. So like Bad Boys was kind of a modest size hit, but it wasn't proof positive that the two leads of that movie were movie stars quite yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so the production on this movie was mostly seemed to be okay, but they realized at the end they had to completely overhaul the entire ending and ended up spending $4.5 million to make a more action-based finale to the movie. They also ended up dropping an entire subplot that was going to be involving a war between the Arquillians and the Balshans. None of that's in the movie. They ended up pasting over it and using the dog character. Um, they brought him in to basically give exposition that would cover over some of the seams. And I think it's pretty seamless, um, to pardon the pun there. I would argue a simple plot works very well in this movie's favor. Yeah, I don't think you want to bog it down. And I, I would not have known that there was a change to the script or anything like that. It, as you say, it flows really well. It does. So I guess then we should really start to break it down and say what we thought about the whole thing. Yeah. I really enjoy this film, as I said before. I just found it, again, like a really easy popcorn film to sit through and watch. I, there's nothing about it that really irked me at all. Not to say it stood out particularly in any, any way, but it, it didn't do anything wrong in my books. It was funny. It had a lot of action. Uh, not a lot of spy drama, I would say, looking back at it. Right. I think we're going to have to decide as we go forward in this podcast, and I mean, not just this episode, this podcast, we are going to cover a lot of movies that tackle secret agents. And so we're going to have to decide where we want to come down versus the lines between spy and secret agent films. Because I do think there is a difference. And this is a pretty prime example of a secret agent movie, but not necessarily a spy movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm open to lots of suggestions, but... I, I think diversity in the, you know, in the knock list is a good thing, so... Yeah, uh, it just might be a case of, especially if it's like a franchise film like this, we might say, okay, this probably won't get any more like what we're looking for if we decide to expel it, and then we just won't do the rest of the franchise. Pretty much, yeah. Which is, which is fine. I mean, I, although I, I would like to have an excuse to watch Men in Black International, because I've never made myself sit through that film. I am happy to be committed to doing all of them. That's just fine oh. with me. Okay, okay. Um. One thing I, I, I jumped out quite early on is, and I knew this from Fresh Prince and I was watching Fresh Prince as a kid, but Will Smith is hilarious. Yeah, like Will Smith gets all the big zingers in this movie. This movie knows Will Smith is a movie star. I think Independence Day kind of knew it as well. Like they definitely gave him some awesome lines, you know, the welcome to earth and they gave him a lot of fun moments opposite Goldblum. But this just feels like, this is like the red carpet being rolled out to Hollywood for Will Smith because while Independence Day was more of an ensemble movie, this movie knew Will Smith was its big draw and marketed the hell out of him too. Well, they gave him the theme song for Christ's sake. The theme song, also the moment with the I make this look good that was in all the trailers, they knew that they had a star. I, I said about quoting the film, that was my quote. Yeah. I'll be eating lunch, I make this look good. <laughs> <laughs> having a shower i make this look good <laughs> failing a test at school i make this look good <laughs> teenage scott sounds really annoying <laughs> teenage scott mate i'm 32 <laughs> and i'm still annoying <laughs> you're still dropping men in black references constantly i do make this look good <laughs> and recreating that alien dance from the video <laughs> i think i own the vhs copy of that video <laughs> I definitely own the uh, the CD. Okay, yeah, yeah. My sister had the CD, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, me and your sister have good taste, unlike you. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, it was very interesting watching this movie now at my age. I'm 39 now. And I watched this movie in a completely different way than I would have in, you know, 1997 when I saw it, or 98 when I rewatched it. In that when I watched that movie... Um, for the you know back in the day I was watching it for Will Smith I was there to see a Will Smith movie and watching it this time I found myself much more interested in what Tommy Lee Jones was doing throughout the movie and it's interesting that Tommy Lee Jones is the top billed actor in the movie that would not be the case a little further down the road but I was so fascinated with what he's doing because Will Smith I think still has some ways to go before he really nails down his acting chops 
versus Tommy Lee Jones is coming in as a very serious actor and being put in a comedic film. And to watch the way he deals with the situations throughout this movie and the little nuances he brings to his character, Will Smith is playing it big, whereas Tommy Lee Jones is playing it subtle. And I found Tommy Lee Jones really riveting. And Will Smith is still a lot of fun. But I just love how these two dynamics of acting kind of play off one another. Yeah, you feel like Tommy Lee Jones is like the credibility of the film. He really is. Like, I think having him signed on gave this movie a legitimacy that it probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And I mean, Clint Eastwood might have brought that as well, to be fair. But there's something about Tommy Lee Jones. At this point in time in his career, he has done Batman Forever, of course, as Two-Face, where I think he gives one of the worst Batman villain performances ever. But nonetheless, he was someone who was showing up in blockbusters occasionally, but he was a very serious actor. And so to see him doing a movie where he's wearing a black suit, walking around with a giant, you know, ray gun, battling aliens, it was something of a novelty, I think, for at least older audience members at the time. And for me, I find it has aged very well, that concept of the movie. It's still a lot of fun to see. Yeah, definitely. I think looking back as an older man, after really enjoying it as, just as a popcorn flick as a kid, I think there's a lot of substance that you don't see um, well, I certainly didn't see it at that age, and I imagine you didn't enjoy it, so you didn't see it yourself. Um, and I think Tommy Lee Jones is really the person that brings it forward. Will Smith is is there, but I think he's well, he's the comedy through line, and he's also your sort of agent, if you were into the world. But Tommy Lee Jones now, when you go back, I think is the is the character you would focus on because he is he's he grounds it all. He does, and you are right. Like there's themes to this movie that. I think have aged very well. Like the concept, you know, we get things earlier in this movie talking about refugees and there's a whole scene where they break up, you know, some illegal immigrants being brought from Mexico into the U.S. And we have scenes with like Tommy Lee Jones talking about how there's 1,500 aliens here living among us. Most of them just want to work and enjoy their lives. You know, it's really sending a theme there that I think has aged very well and is very applicable to the modern time and probably will be to the future as well. But I even love the scene where Tommy Lee Jones does show up at that scene where they pull over the van with the immigrants coming from Mexico. And Tommy Lee Jones basically is just like, head off to the U.S. We don't worry about this. Like, it, it has a very more positive and more welcoming approach to refugees than maybe some films might even have nowadays. It doesn't really hit you over the head with any of these sort of subtle points, no. I would say it's all just worked into the fabric of the film because, you know, they say they work for INS division six, which no one knows what it is, but it deals with a lot of these concepts of immigration that I'm sure they spoke to people back in 97, but they seem much more prominent, especially given the way the political climate has become nowadays here in the 20, you know, in 2020. And I found just those themes very interesting and gave the movie maybe some weightiness that, I don't even know if it was intended in 97, but it carries it a little more now and has helped it age very well. I think another thing I never picked up on as a, as a kid watching this is that sense of loss that uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character has throughout the film. You mm-hmm. know, when he's, he's caught looking at his wife over the satellite camera and stuff like that. It's a quick scene that you would just dismiss, really, if you're waiting for the next action thing to come along. But um, he does that bit really well. Yeah, there's genuine melancholy to the character of Kay because, you know, you look at what the Men in Black life is. And I mean, there's a scene where he says to Will Smith, okay, if you join up, you're going to give up everything, you know, your identity, basically who you are, you are invisible. And Will Smith signs up. And I made a note like, boy, he really just made that decision very quickly. Like there's a lot of ramifications to this, to what this choice is. But he's also a very kind of impetuous character. And we see through Tommy Lee what the cost of that decision will be for the life going forward. Will Smith's not thinking about that. He's thinking about the here and now. Yeah, I, I made a note, or two notes, actually. The first one was what you said, which was he rushed into that choice. He, what he took uh, overnight uh, sort of thinking about it. But the other note I wrote down was, who actually wants this job? Well, I don't. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm I'm not married or anything like that, but I I don't think I just want to give up my entire existence. Now, he must have zero acquaintances or family or a love life. That's a common movie thing, though. Whenever characters have to join some sort of secret society, 
they invariably um, <laughs> have very few contacts in their outside life that could ever interfere with this choice. Oh, sure. It's just, I suppose I'm digging deeper than the film would actually want to go anyway. I don't know. Um, because the fact is, we see through the Tommy Lee character that that choice does mean something. It doesn't to Will Smith, but it does to Tommy Lee. Oh, sure. And, and I think that's one of the big things that uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character brings. But I don't think we'd want to see Will Smith's character dwell on it too much. I think it would just slow the film down. Yeah, well, that's also true. But I feel like the Men in Black organization, to be a member of it, you have to be a workaholic. You have to be someone who work is all that means anything to you. Because, like, for me, that would not operate too well for the way I like to live. No, I'm, I'm in the same boat. As soon as that uh, clock strikes, whatever hour I'm finishing, I'm basically packing out the door. Mm-hmm. Scott, you got something to do? No, bye. Yeah, same boat. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, where's my check coming in? Okay, cool. See ya. Work to live, not live to work. That is my, that is my motto. Except if, if it involves spy hearts, in which case I live to work. I work to live. Please, please sponsor <laughs> us. <laughs> but I was very impressed w- watching this movie in how easily it sets up its world, its tone, everything. It's dealt with so quickly. Like I was writing down time markers of how things were introduced. Within 15 minutes, pretty much everything we need to know is established. And I was just blown away with that right from even the get-go. You know, you referenced earlier the opening credits with the dragonfly whipping around. And the movie is presented by Emblem Pictures, which... Um, Spielberg, it was his company for a long time. Um, it's actually been brought back in recent years. So Amblin does still exist. Amblin was behind movies like E.T., Close Encounters, Goonies. It had a very specific tone to those kind of movies, a certain fantastical feel to them. But they were never too serious. They could have scary moments, but they were fun for the family. And it opens with that Amblin logo. And we have a scene of this dragonfly flying around the screen all over the place. And at one point, it soars right up in front of the moon, echoing the Amblin slash E.T. moment of, you know, the kids in the bike and with E.T. going in front of the moon. And I'm like, they just nailed, for me, like what the tone is. It has that fun, supernatural kind of fantasy feel to it. And it just really rolls from there, setting everything up so simply and effectively. Yeah, I, I don't remember ever noticing as a young and that it was an Amblin film, but I probably didn't know what that meant at that time. So when I saw the, the logo come up, I thought, oh, yeah, that does sort of fit what this film is about. It's kind of approachable, family-friendly, uh, and in, an enjoyable, wholesome film, I would have said altogether. And that's, I think, for me, what Amblin stands for. Right, and you have a moment early on where Tommy Lee has exposed that alien. They've got it out in kind of the desert there. And it charges at them. It goes all crazy. And all these various appendages are all, you know, flapping around in the air. And it's got the big teeth. And it's charging this, like, sheriff or whatever, this police officer. And um, it's scary, but it's not too scary. Like, little kids might kind of, you know, cower or cover their eyes or something. But it's fun. And I think that's something that Amblin does really well. And that tone is carried through this whole movie. I got to give a lot of credit to Barry Sonnenfeld, who I can't say I gave a lot of credit to in 97. But he had made the Adams Family movies, which have a similar tone where they're kind of creepy and dark, but also very family friendly. And I think he carries that over very well here. I'm glad you mentioned creepy, actually, because that's something I wanted to, to touch on was I'm not a big fan of bugs. Mm. And I especially am not a big fan of cockroaches. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of them in this film. As a kid, I didn't like it very much. So I would, especially when I was younger watching this film, I would sort of look away at the you know, cockroach coming out of the sleeve in the morgue or, like, or scurrying around the floor and stuff. It kind of grossed me out. It still kind of grosses me out now. So they've kept that going for me. Well, I think it's a good thing to have kind of creepy elements in there that make kids kind of squirm a bit, but they're not too scary. And cockroaches are probably the best creature to throw in there if you want to have that sort of impact. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're like scary. They're just a bit, ugh. Yeah, and the entire character of the villain, uh, Edgar, I mean, he's... Um, unsettling he's weird i mean it's a guy who's basically walking around in a skin suit not unlike uh leatherface from the texas chainsaw massacre mm-hmm. but it's done in a certain cartoonish way where it's creepy and weird but also kind of fun for kids yeah and i think i i remember quoting the old uh, sugar in water <laughs> line a lot as a kid along with uh, other quotes as i've mentioned before 
Um, but and I remember the performance um, for Edgar. I I enjoyed seeing that on the on the screen. But coming back to it this time, I thought that's actually a well crafted bad guy. Like he's completely one dimensional, but they give him a lot to do. Like you can tell yeah. that Vincent D'Onofrio is having a lot of fun and just gets to work with a lot of physical acting that he would not get to do in most of most jobs, quite frankly. And so, like, you can tell they're just having fun with this creation. It's kind of like, you know, you look at, like, the ghost dogs or whatever they are, the demon dogs in Ghostbusters. They're not fleshed-out characters, but they have a lot of impact when they're on screen, and they bring a lot of energy every time they pop up. And it's one of those sort of villains, I use the term villain, that will stick in your memory, especially as you're a kid watching this film. It's oh, yeah. memorable. He is. Like, he's an iconic image, and I think that's something that the franchise maybe struggled with going forward. And we'll chart that as we go, but that the villains, they always had trouble creating good follow-up villains. Actually, you've said it to me now. I'm just sitting there thinking about the other films and I couldn't name anything really. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Well, I've got that to look forward to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh. I, I, before I forget to mention, actually, uh, seeing as I, I pointed out a, uh, a park last week, I'm going to point out I noticed another park that I've been to, as I'm sure the listeners are fascinated to know. Uh, when Kay is telling Jay about the men in black, they're sat, I think they're eating something, uh, and he leaves them with the thoughts to choose to join or not. That's in Battery Park in New York, in the southern part of Manhattan Island, right by the financial district, which I went to many, many years ago. And I, I sat there watching the film and thought, hey, I've been there. And it turns out I was right for once. I wasn't wrong this time. And you are recording live from there right this moment. Yeah, not socially distanced this time, but fortunately, Will Smith is free and is now recording me. <laughs> and what did you think, though, of the setup of this movie, the way they established the world? Because you think of so many movies nowadays that are, you know, deal with the supernatural or deal with kind of a complicated world with organizations and all that stuff and how much time they spend spouting exposition introducing you to every aspect of it and the way this movie just doles it out over a fairly short period of time but does it so effectively i think it's done really well i think it, it doesn't say too much to you it sort of leaves it there for you to pick up as you go and when mm -hmm. you're looking at sort of the the customs as they're walking through the men in black building and uh case has a little bit about it being customs and you know, refugees coming through and that sort of thing but, you know, you see people with luggage, you kind of get the idea that it's like a customs and you, and you start to fill out the world and then they get to the, the screens where there's the uh, celebrities that are undercover and things like that. It doesn't really say much about it. Obviously, it says Jay's teacher was a, an alien later on. But um, yeah, it, it just lets you sort of fill in the gaps yourself and it doesn't dwell on it too much. It just sort of goes, this is what we're doing. Let's keep going. Well, it's really fun to have Tommy Lee Jones as your navigator because Kay is such a you know, man of few words type character that he isn't interested in explaining everything to Will Smith or to the audience, you know, by extension. He's just, he's seen it all. So he kind of gives these tossed off lines. He'll sum up basically a concept in three words if he can, <laughs> you know, the fewest number of words possible. And so it lets us experience the world through Will Smith, but not in a boring way because I've seen a ton of movies where they introduce a character um, who is a blank slate. He or she has very little personality and they are there for the audience to project themselves on. But like, why would we care? Because they're not interesting. You know, Sam Worthington played a few characters like this. Um, but Will Smith is a very distinct personality. And so it's really fun to introduce ourselves to the world through his reactions, which are almost more exaggerated versions of what we might do. You know, if we're a little shocked, he's super shocked in the scene. And I think that's a lot of fun. But then he's also just sort of rolling with it because he's quite eager to get on. So he's not, he's not going, aliens, what? Tell me how aliens existed. And I want to know all of the backstory. He just says, okay. Uh, he, gets, he sees the first alien. He gets told a bit about aliens. He sees aliens. He, he doesn't overreact to it. He just kind of goes, okay, that makes sense. Let's keep going. And you can imagine too that a different movie, maybe if they had more money to throw around, they would bombard you with aliens. Like every scene would be Will Smith walking into the Mos Eisley Cantina from Star Wars versus this movie, which uses them sparingly. You know, you get little bits. You get the worm aliens making the coffee. You mm -hmm. get that scene with the, uh, you know, the big room, which is, I guess, like kind of the alien immigration scene. Um, 
there are a lot of aliens in there, but there's not a ton. It's like maybe a dozen or so that we get little moments with as he walks past them. And it's not shot to kind of dwell on them too much. Or overwhelm just, you, yeah. Yeah, they're just there. They're there doing their business of, as you say, going through customs or immigration. And J and K are just there to do their job. And everyone's just getting on with it. The, the only bit where I suppose he's bewildered is when he sees the four aliens making coffee. But even that's, I suppose it's played for laughs, but they don't spend too much time on it. Yeah, totally. And I love the aesthetics of the world as well. I think they made a lot of smart choices. They deserve that Oscar nomination for art direction. The entire world of the MIBs is incredibly well realized. It's not confusing at all. I like how it has a little bit of a 60s kind of vibe, especially in those egg chairs they're sitting in, uh, in the scene where Will Smith has to write the test. It has a lot of like 60s futuristic kind of, you know, cool. Yeah, it's a really good looking place. I mean, you've got those, uh, all those sort of circular pods in all the walls and things like that. It's it just, it's played as cool. And you feel cool when you're in there with Will Smith learning about it. And I, 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 think, it's just, I, I think that's one of the option words is cool. This film just feels cool. But cool in a way that's accessible to everyone. It's not kind of shutting out a certain segment of the audience. It lets everyone in on it. Okay, that, that brings me on to something else I wanted to ask you about. Rip Torn, who plays Zed in the film. My memory says that something bad happened with him or something. I know he's not no longer with us, but because um, he wasn't in the later films, if I'm, my memory serves. I believe he's in the second one, isn't he? Maybe. I'd have to check. Um, I, I'm sure he's not in the third, although they do do like a time jump backwards, obviously, with that one. Yeah. Uh, Rip Torn definitely had some personal problems. I think there was some addiction problems, maybe some depression. Um, he definitely wound up in some trouble. It's unfortunate because I think he's really fun here and I love his gruff demeanor. Um, it's interesting to add a character in here who somehow outgruffs Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I think it's important to give them somewhat of a structure in, the, in that sort of organization and to give them someone to, to answer to after all because you know, they are going around neuralizing you know, whole blocks of people at times. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, um, we'll see Emma Thompson in the role as the leader of the Men in Black. And I think she's really good, too. But uh, Rip Torn has such a specific energy. Like, if Tommy Lee Jones has seen it all, Rip Torn has seen it all, like, ten times through. Like, he is just a guy who's the epitome of world-weary. He might be the only one in the office who actually just sort of cashes his check and finishes on time, I would say. Yeah. And it's interesting... He's my, my idol. <laughs> And it's interesting how this movie introduces Will Smith into the Men in Black, but we also have this side story with Linda Fiorentino's character who works in the morgue, who's kind of going through a similar journey where she keeps being exposed to the Men in Black as well, but then keeps being neuralized. So <laughs> over and over again. I was about to sort of lead on to her because we hadn't really spoken about that character yet. And I had, yeah. this, I had a question at the end of my viewing. I was sort of, sort of sitting back and really absorbing it. So Will Smith's character, Jay, shows a lot of aptitude for the position. You know, he catches the criminal at the start. He's able to outrun an alien. He then shows aptitude at the test when he brings the table over and in the firing range test. Yep. My question is, what on earth did Linda Fiorentino's character, Laurel, show to get the job? Because, okay, she shoots an alien at the end and she's kind of involved in passing with the story because she works in a morgue. How does she pass the test? Well, I mean, I would argue she's someone who obviously discovers a lot in the morgue with these alien bodies, but also pursues this information. Like she's always trying to investigate it. So I think it shows a, a willingness to basically take that extra step. She's someone who, when confronted with something that is unusual, her you know, instinct is to pursue it and to try to understand it. So I think she has that going for her. I think it's just, I understand your point and you are right, actually. But I think maybe I'm just left with a bit of a sour taste in my mouth that one of the only female actors in the whole film, it's a very male-heavy film, really doesn't get a lot of agency. No, and it's very unfortunate that, um, you know, her character is joining the Men in Black at the end of this movie and then is not in the sequels which is a real bummer because I think Linda Fiorentino was a very interesting casting choice. She's someone who came more from the independent film world and she brings a really weird energy to this movie that I think is very interesting to watch bounce off of Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Yeah, because you've got all that sort of heavy flirting earlier on and things like that. Um, 
she's quite enjoyable to watch but she has like a darker edge too and it's the character feels more i don't know more offbeat than you would normally get in a you know blockbuster film yeah sort of quirky and dry like very dry yeah, um, I mean, I would have liked to have seen her in, in the follow-up films, and I, I'm looking forward to you explaining to me exactly why that didn't happen somewhere I, down the road. Yeah, um, it's interesting, though. Like, I remember when this movie ended, that was one aspect that I actually was looking forward to was seeing her in a sequel, um, because I thought she was really fun in this movie. And yeah, well, dream shattered, I suppose. Hey, it happens in Hollywood. It is weird, though, to spend so much time with this character set them up for a sequel and not have her back. So yeah, we'll delve into that, I guess, when we talk about Men in Black too. I suppose we should take this opportunity to look at some of the side characters as well. Um, I mean, I mentioned Rip Torn as Zed. The only other one I, I really liked was uh, Tony Shalhoub's turn as Jeebs. Yeah, that little wormy guy gets his head shot off. That's that sort of, I think that scene's in the trailer. Um, just a comical, and Tony Shalhoub is a great actor anyway, so it was nice to see him in the film. Any other one stand out to you at all? Well, I mean, the pug. How do you not love the pug? Did you did you get the sort of Rocky Horror Richard O'Brien concept out of the human he was next to? Um, yeah, that was a weird look, huh? <laughs> yeah, he's got the riffraff character from Rocky Horror Picture Show down. If that, I mean, that's a good look, strong look, but uh, yeah, odd choice. Are you doing the time warp right now? It, it is just a step to the left, Cam. <laughs> I know like I love that scene because when you are introduced to Frank the pug and that weird dude he's next to your eye goes directly to the weird dude like you are not even looking at that dog I mean it wouldn't be the first time Richard O'Brien's been referred to as a weird dude so yeah that makes sense <laughs> but no I think the Frank character the dog I mean obviously he'd become a fan favorite and show up in the sequels but mm -hmm. I think as a plot element here that was mostly introduced for exposition he's pretty memorable yeah, it certainly sticks out in the film. I mean, I, I will sort of pop for anything that's slightly Rocky Horror related. Yeah, the only other um, side character that I sort of popped for seeing was Carol Striken's character from... I, well, I know him from the Twin Peaks worlds, and he's also appeared in, in Star Trek, I believe, as well. Um, that was nice to see. Yeah, he's actually uh, really fun and had a far more prominent uh, role in this movie than I expected. Yeah, because do, do you not see him at the beginning in the sort of customs immigration area? Yeah, you do. Yeah, he's throughout the movie because he's tied to this Archelian leader that's hiding in plain sight, who's assassinated by Edgar. And so he's the one kind of going back and forth. And then, of course, winds up in the morgue and we see him get dissected. Um, it's uh, a very prominent role. And I mean, I guess he did work with Barry Sonnenfeld on The Addams Family. He played Lurch. So of course, of course, the connection was definitely there. I'm sure that's what got him the role. Uh, I don't know if you noticed another actor that popped up, uh, Vern Troyer of Austin Powers fame. Did he? He played the alien baby, I believe. Inside the head? Uh, no, no. The one that's delivered in the car where Will Smith is getting flapped around by the tentacles, like the tentacled squid baby, I believe. Because it's he's listed as alien son. Wait, so, wait, wait. You're not pulling my leg. I'm 100% serious. But... Uh, <laughs> what? Sizing doesn't even make sense. Well, Vern Troyer is listed as alien son. So I'm trying to like wrap my head around what other character was an alien son in that movie. And I, that's the only one that jumps to mind. This is outrageously strange information for me to learn. And I need to find out who he actually played now. Oh, my Lord. Okay, so we took a moment to have a little look at this and to check Cam's information because he almost blew my mind with Vern Troy being that little tentacle baby that comes out of the lady in the car. And unfortunately, Cam's information is incorrect. It turns out that Vern Troy plays a child in the immigration hall at the beginning of the film. Cam, what do you have to say about your correct information? I was just going off the credit alien son, and that was the only alien son I could think of. Um, but uh, I can live with it. <laughs> how, how can we trust what you say from now on? You're our information guy. I just don't believe me if it comes to Vern Troyer trivia. Okay. So when we get to the Austin Powers films, I'll, I'll, I'll take the trivia section. Yeah, I'll be all over the place at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I was going to connect this to with sort of spy films is there's quite a lot of gadgets in this film. Yeah. 
the one that sticks out to me the most is I had a toy of it when I was a kid. It was the Neuralizer. Okay, yeah. Um, now, apart from wishing I had my own one, because there's several memories in my brain I wish I could just uh, laser out. <laughs> um, is there any other ones you enjoyed apart from, uh, I assume, the Neuralizer? The Neuralizer is the one with the big impact because, I mean, it's pretty darn cool. Um, some of the other ones remind me a little, you know, quite a bit of Star Trek stuff. So they don't have the novelty factor, whereas the Neuralizer is very distinct and a unique design and used a lot throughout the movie to very effective means. Um, but some of the guns I thought were pretty cool, like the giant, enormous, cartoonish men in black guns that they're using at the end to shoot down Edgar's saucer. I thought those were really cool as well. I wonder if they ever released the guns as toys. I know the Neuralizer came out because I had it. I would think so. In 1997, they would have without a thought. Now they might question whether they should do that. But back then, I think they would have. They might have stayed away from the noisy cricket just in case kids start throwing themselves backwards. That too, yeah. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> Hey, it was 97. Maybe it's just like, fuck it, let them throw themselves backwards. I thought there was a couple of gadgets, though, that had aged very poorly. One of them was the light ball. We have that whole sequence of a light ball bouncing around the Men in Black headquarters. I was just like, okay. Like, scenes like that don't really do a lot for me. Um, the other one was a lot of the car stuff in this movie has not aged well. Like, early on, they're just speeding up the film whenever they're driving. And I'm like, that looks really awkward. That, this is when I, I sort of led in with this last week and I was worried about watching it on Blu-ray. The driving scenes, uh, the bits where they use a little bit of CG work there, didn't look very good on my copy. Right, yeah. Like, there's moments where they're just speeding up the film. That didn't look great. But also the scene where they press the red button and they're flying through that tunnel. I'm like, boy, this stuff has not aged well. Anything to do with cars in this movie, not great. <laughs> but then the, the CG at the end with Edgar, uh, when he's back in his, like alien form looks great yep no complaints there i mean i think with the edgar stuff you have the a lot of mixing with cg and actual practical effects although you are right the edgar cockroach is completely cg they actually did try it with a practical and it just did not work so they went with the cg and um i think that actually works very well so it is a weird mix because i think this movie walks the line really well. I think movies that do walk the line between CG and practical have aged the best. You know, there's an alien they find inside the head of the Archelian leader that I think is phenomenal. I think that little alien in the head looks incredible. And I thought the CG version of Edgar also worked very well. Yeah, it certainly worked for me. Now, I did have a question for you, not about gadgets. Uh, during the film, Will Smith says this is about a nine on my weird shitometer. Right. What, what's a 10? Um, huh. Sitting through Men in Black International. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really can't, I can't wait to see this film. <sighs> I had a couple other points I'll bring up, just kind of disconnected thoughts. But um, number one, um, Tommy Lee Jones's plan at the end to get devoured by Edgar, he had a lot of faith in that plan that I would not have had. <laughs> Yeah, he, he really went uh, headfirst into that plan, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> I mean, wow, <laughs> that's commitment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at like Drax in uh, Guardians 2 when he jumps into the thing to try and stab it from the outside. You yeah. get it, because Drax is mad. Mm -hmm. He's also well, like, he's... invulnerable. Yeah, he's also invulnerable, more or less. But Kay is like, I mean, you, you can tell he wants to retire because he really doesn't want to have anything to live for by the looks of it. He's going to jump down that guy's throat. Yeah. So I thought that was uh, interesting. Um, also, just with some of the Barry Sonnenfeld stuff, he made The Addams Family. And there's a definite um, element of Tim Burton influence on Barry Sonnenfeld. And you could see that in some of the moments in this movie where he does some weird, like, almost body horror stuff. You have that scene where the character, like, Edgar, like, pulls his face backwards. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, stretched. It reminded me a lot of Beetlejuice where they do things like that, as well as the scene where they blow up Tony Shalhoub's head and then it grows back as this small head. That reminded me a lot of Beetlejuice as well. So you could definitely see some Tim Burton influence uh, throughout this movie. Yeah, I, I never really looked at it that way, but that is a very cool connection, actually. Mm -hmm. Another element that I loved, even when I saw it in theaters, this was actually maybe one of my favorite takeaways from the movie back in 97, was the very ending where we zoom completely out 
and Earth is just a marble being played with by an alien. Like, I always thought that was a really cool way to end that movie. Yeah, I suppose it didn't really make 10-year-old me think particularly. I, you, you had a few more years on me. You were a cool teenager by that point. That's right, watching Speed 2 Cruise Control. Hell yeah. <laughs> but no, as an adult, that, that is a, a sort of a cool ending. They don't really touch on that again as far as I remember. But um, yeah, I think it's just a nice, nice ending to the film. Well, it set it up as a franchise that you had to end strongly. And we're going to have to track how these movies nail their endings going forward because I felt like this was such a perfect ending. I mean, when they made this movie, I don't think they were thinking franchise because I don't think Tommy Lee Jones gets neuralized at the end of this movie if they're planning a part two when they're making part one. Yeah, I mean, obviously setting up Laurel to come back as an agent, I guess. I, I don't know what her agent name was. It's, uh, I think it's, is it L? It could be. I don't think they gave her one in the movie. Mm. But yeah, by writing off Tommy Lee Jones, who is the, well, he's the lead actor in the film, it, it, it would say, it would kind of has that sort of Matrix ending where it's kind of perfect. You didn't need to have the sequels. Yeah, some might argue there shouldn't have been any sequels. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get into that debate. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I enjoyed about this movie that would not be the case in a different franchise, and I don't even think it would have been the case if you made Men in Black now, like as a brand new property. But these two characters, the two leads, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, are not action heroes. I mean, you see Will Smith getting knocked down constantly when he's battling the cockroach. It smacks him in the head. He hits the ground. And you can see he takes that hit. Like, it actually has an impact on him. And a lot of movies, um, especially in a, you know, Marvel world, characters get hit and get up very quickly without acknowledging sort of the physicality of what's happened to them. Yeah, like there's actually something at stake that they actually could get hurt. Yeah, like when's the last time you saw a movie like a blockbuster, a summer movie, where you really felt like the characters were actually getting hurt? It's very rare. It's certainly not something you get in the Marvel Universe, like you say, although I suppose um, Infinity War kind of disproves that. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I would say Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw was the most realistically human film I've seen in years. I... I think we could all pretty much hold onto a helicopter from a truck. I'm doing it right now. I'm multitasking. <laughs> Is Tommy Lee Jones holding the microphone for you? I, I think I hold the mic for Tommy Lee. <laughs> I, I think you might be right. <laughs> so, yeah, I just think this movie is like, has a lot of fun touches. I love the tabloid stories, that that's where they get their information. The way this world is set up is so simple that... I had a lot of appreciation for it this time that I didn't in the past to the point where I genuinely enjoyed watching the movie. And that surprised me because when you pitched this one, I could tell you were enthusiastic about it. I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> here, here comes black cloud cam rolling in, you know? Hey, but, I've poo-pooed a couple of films you've mentioned too. So for sure. And I, I genuinely expected this to be more negative on my part, but I really did enjoy it and 22 years did make a significant difference in just how I perceived this movie and how I just took it in and rolled with it. I didn't know you were such uh, I don't want to say a hater of the film but you certainly didn't enjoy it as a kid I never got that impression so it was quite interesting to hear it today but I'm glad your opinion has changed on it as an adult because I still like the film I wonder how much of that has to do with the way blockbusters look and feel now and that when I watch Men in Black now, it feels like such a throwback to a different time where we got original properties. And yes, this was based on a comic, but it was one no one had ever heard of. And they were dealt with in a way that wasn't like end of the, well, I guess it does have an end of the world state kind of thing to it, but it's not played as like overly bombastic and, you know, just world crushing and CG flying everywhere. Like this feels like a much more stripped down, fun, fast and loose movie. I mean, this movie is 90 minutes long. I was going to mention that actually in my sort of wrap up. I was so happy to have a 90 minute film. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard not to appreciate that where most action blockbusters are like two and a half hours nowadays. Yeah, that seems to have been the runtime for most of our films so far as hanging around the two hour mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about uh, Man from Uncle last week. It's funny we went from man to men, but... Um, that movie was two hours and it's also like a very light, goofy, fun spy caper. And you kind of question like, why did that movie need to be two hours? I think you could have actually made it in probably, you know, 9,500 minutes. 
Yeah, if you compare the two, you, I would definitely say you know more about the world of Men in Black in 90 minutes than you do about the, the man from UNCLE. Yeah, well, we didn't even get introduced to the world of the man from UNCLE in that movie. <laughs> no, no, just the people. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's going to bring us on to the inevitable question, Cam. Does this make the knock list? This is tough because I think we have to determine whether this movie belongs like on the knock list. It is a secret agent movie. It's not a spy movie. Um, They are investigating things. Uh, They are kind of entering through these worlds and having to kind of blend in, which feels very spy oriented. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about the secret agent versus spy thing? Well, I wrote this down as more of a detective story. Mm hmm. Because it's it's more like they're detectives in a, in a cop drama. Yeah, there's a lot of connecting the dots and basically charting where Edgar or what, like what Edgar is and where he could be going and what he wants that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I to me it doesn't feel like a spy film, mm-hmm. which I think is where you're leading to. While it may have some similarities to spy tropes and spy cinema. Uh, you know, we're going undercover and things like that. Ultimately, I, I just don't feel like it, it fits the bracket. That's kind of where I came down as well, where I enjoyed the elements we've seen pop up in some of the other spy films, but it feels looser. Like, I don't know that I can say it's spy cinema. Um, I still think it's going to be interesting to do the sequels and see if maybe they apply a little more, just in terms of the tropes. But um, I think it's a really fun you know, secret agency uh, blockbuster film, but it just doesn't quite feel like, when I look at the ones we've got in there, Goldeneye and, um, and, the, and uh, North by Northwest, it does feel a little bit divorced, but maybe we should be considering it because it's doing things that are a little different. Like it, it does add a different feel to the movies in the collection. Um, And it's tough to argue against it in quality terms because I think it achieves what it is basically set out to do um, as a sci-fi, you know, kind of comedy dealing with agents and all of this kind of world building. It pulls that stuff off. So that's why I'm really struggling with this one. I have an answer to the question written down in front of me. And I am about 60% sure it's the right answer. Okay. So I, I understand your struggle. Mm-hmm. But I will go first okay. and see if that leads you to make a decision. I went with no. And here's why. To me, this is a perfect example of a great summer blockbuster buddy cop film. They do some detective work. They do a teeny bit of secret agent work. It is a secret organization. Um, some of those tropes from spy films. But there's no spy craft. And, it, and not to say that it has to happen for any film we pick, but for me, it, it just felt like it was too far away from the line. Right. Um, and that's why I went no. That's fair enough, yeah. I mean, I can completely get on board with that, and that was my initial instinct upon finishing the movie. I think I struggle a little more with just when you look at what this movie's trying to do and the sort of the subgenre it fits into – there's no other really strong examples that are popping to my mind when we, in terms of movies we would cover. But I, I do agree. Like, I think it may be a little too divorced from what we're looking for in the world of spy cinema to include it. But that said, you know, folks, The Knock List is a bonus. The movies we're going to cover, the discussion is what it's all about. The Knock List is just kind of a bonus tick mark at the end. It's, you know, I wouldn't judge the movie whether it makes or doesn't make the knock list because we've covered some good movies that didn't make the knock list. And that'll be the reality going forward. It's about the greatest of all time. The ones we really feel are the canon. And if Men in Black doesn't make the canon, that doesn't mean that the discussion we had about it didn't mean anything or that the discussion we have about the franchise, the sequels, maybe ranking the sequels and how they, this, the franchise evolved, all that stuff will have value as well. So the knock list, just a bonus, but I think I agree it doesn't quite make that, you know, it doesn't get that tick mark. I mean, absolutely. I, I went on record last week to say Man From U.N.C.L.E. was a good film mm-hmm. and to watch it. And I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed watching this film again. I, I will watch Men in Black again, I guarantee, in the next five years. 
Yeah, like I would give recommendations, yeah, to Man From U.N.C.L.E., Men in Black, and Born Identity, three movies that didn't make the knock list quite, um, but they're all deserving fun movies. It's just they don't land on that. They don't cross that line into great that I think we demand. Yeah, um, I agree. So, it's a no from me. And same here. Okay. So, Men in Black is officially not on the knock list. Uh, Cam, where can people find this list? They can head over to letterboxd.com slash spyhards where we'll have lists set up of the films that made the knock list, the films that didn't make the knock list, and just everything we've covered. So you can interact with us there if you'd like um, and uh, what have you and read the list. So there we go. And with that revelation, the dossier on Men in Black is complete and filed as classified. Cam, what film are we looking at next week? We're going to take on the 2011 coming-of-age spy film, Hannah, starring Saoirse Ronan. This one's really interesting. It's got Kate Blanchett in it. It has some really fantastic actors. It has a very unique vibe. It's going to feel very different than the movies we've covered so far. And it was directed by Joe Wright, who's a director of some note as well. He did Atonement. So it's a bit of an arthouse director doing a spy film. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, this is a new one for me. I've not seen it before, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to tackling it for the first time. I think it, the conversation will be really interesting and we'll have a lot of stuff to delve into for sure. Great stuff. Now, don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, uh, on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you do get a chance, please give us a five-star review on whatever podcast app you are using. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. Mm -hmm.